Good morning. It's Jeff Feldman, Food Safety EDU. Uh, I'm just looking over my little podcast website. And for those of you that podcast, you just get the verbal uh, podcast portion. But on the computer, there's the actual website. And it has the home page, the study page, the Coast Guard Sanitation TTP, uh, Food Code 2017, my biography, contact resource page, and some videos that I'm doing um, both on cooking and on food safety. So here on the uh, study page, I have uh, a few things, so I just wanted to go over it so that you can actually hear it on the podcast. Okay, today is Sunday, 17th, St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Good manufacturing practices. So this is uh, this is like earlier in one of the other podcasts, I mentioned how uh, Ty Whitman, when I was studying for water treatment, uh, he was doing a, a podcast for um, for the water, and he would use uh, flashcards. Okay, and then he created audio flashcards, which were great. So that's basically what this is. Uh, the study page are audio flashcards. Um, so you can listen as you drive back and forth uh, to work or wherever you're going. Um, so we'll just start. Uh, GMP, when you see that on the test, it means good manufacturing practices. And then farther down, there should be GAP. There is GAP, good agriculture practices. So in the food safety uh, test, we have to purchase everything from an approved, reputable supplier someone we trust, someone to, who's inspected. And uh, so good manufacturing practices, those are the people we want to use, and good agriculture practices. Uh, cross-contact. Cross-contact is uh, it's the same thing as cross-contamination, but when you read the word cross-contact, it's focusing on food allergens. Um, so having to do with allergies, it's the same idea as the cross-contamination, but for allergies only. So when you're taking the test and you see cross-contact, immediately think of food allergies. Uh, cross-contamination is, uh, that's the pathogens going from one food to another, or one uh, food contact surface, like a knife going to another, or even your hands going to uh, food. So uh, cross-contamination has to do with the pathogens, whereas cross-contact goes with the allergies. Okay, 100 degrees, uh, the hand-washing water. So it should be as warm as you can comfortably stand, and 100 degrees is, is a good number. Thermocoupler and thermistor, those are uh, different temperature measuring devices, thermometers that you carry around in your sleeve, uh, but the sensor is at the tip. Okay, and some of these uh, fancier models have uh, interchangeable probes. So you can have the long immersion probe, which means it goes into liquid, immerse. Uh, surface probe for your griddle or your hot plate. You want to know how hot the pan is or the griddle is. So that's a surface uh, attachment. Air, when you walk into the refrigerator, you want to know the ambient air temperature of the refrigerator or the meat preparation room. Uh, or the internal temperature, uh, which would be inside of the, the product. So a piece of steak, you want to know that it's reaching 145 degrees. Or a piece of chicken for 165. Okay. TTI, time temperature indicator. Uh, it's, a, it's a, well, oftentimes we get them on crab cans, cans of fresh crab. Uh, and there's like a little green jelly bean that comes on top. Um, and it's a time temperature indicator. So 
if the delivery truck, the delivery driver has an issue and the refrigeration unit breaks down, this little jelly bean, this time temperature indicator, this TTI, will have an irreversible change in color if the temperature is abused. So when it comes in the door and you see that little jelly bean, and it should be green, saying that the temperature was correct, and if it's red, uh, then you reject that product. So more and more we're seeing these uh, time temperature indicators. And it could be a label, uh, like a sticker, but it changes the color. There's multiple windows, and it, it shows the hours of abuse. Um, so TTI, time temperature indicator. Infrared. Infrared laser thermometers, um, they're only for the surface temperatures only. And if you're trying to get a temperature on the food, on the steam line, and it has plastic wrap over it to keep it, or a lid on it, you got to take the lid off. You got to take the plastic wrap off. You got to take the aluminum foil off. You need to zap the product in order to get a temperature of the product. And again, it's only the external or the top, you know, wherever the laser infrared uh, thermometer is actually lazing, uh, it won't know the inside. So it could be raw on the inside and nice and hot on the outside. It's like the headlights of your car also. The closer you are, the better the reading. So when you drive up to a garage door, the headlights pinpoint and you get a nice accurate reading. When you back up, the headlights get really big on the garage door. And so you lose the, um, the, uh, the temperature. It, it, it's not as accurate. So as close as possible, uh, and only surface. All right, scombroid. Scombroid fish poisoning. It's for temperature-abused uh, fish, and the bacteria can grow on the fish and cause in the person who consumes it an allergic reaction, even though they're not allergic. So it's a histamine poisoning, uh, just like an allergy is a histamine uh, attack on the body. So this fish poisoning is when the f the fish is temperature abused. In other words, it's not uh, held below 41 degrees, and it allows the bacteria to grow to a level where it becomes a toxin, a poison. And when we consume it, it reacts with our human body like an allergy or an allergic reaction. Some of the fish associated are mahi-mahi, mackerel, tuna, um, and so... Oftentimes, uh, tuna and other fish are cooked uh, undercooked now, or tartar, rare, raw. Uh, so, and even if you were to cook the fish to 145, 165, 200 degrees, once the toxin is there, the toxin stays. You can't cook it away. You can't wash it away. You can't freeze it away. There's nothing you can do. When the toxin is there, it's there, and it's going to make somebody sick. Okay, 90 days. Is it recording? It's recording. Okay, five seconds, six seconds. Good. So I'm going to merge these two uh, audios together here in a minute. So I've, I've gone over the first part of this um, the study page on the foodsafetyedu.podbean.com, um, my podcast website. And uh, so I left off at 90 days. So keep all shell stock identification tags uh, and fish tags now for 90 days. So when the the shellfish growers, you know, grow their product in the water, um, it's on the coast. And then sometimes rain will happen. And so all the poop, all the animal stuff will wash into the, into the water off the hills 
and it'll, the water becomes contaminated with an amount of feces, fecal matter. And then if there's a farm nearby and somebody has uh, is sick and, and they go to the bathroom, um, sometimes their septic system it breaks down and it turns into a cesspool instead, and then it leaches and leaks out into the creek. The creek travels down to the uh, water source and can get out into the the uh, growing area, and that that happens. Um, so the growers test the water continually, and whenever there's a rain, they stop production for three days and wait for the ebb and flow of the water to clean up their animals, the, the oysters, clams, mussels. Uh, and, and things like that. So those growers have to be working on HACCP, hazard analysis and critical control point. So they're checking the water all the time. They're testing the water. They're checking the animals, making sure, you know, taking samples um, that things are safe. So they do the best they can. And then they sell to us uh, in the industry. And when the bag or box comes with uh, 50 of these oysters, we'll say, there also comes a shell stock identification tag, a little piece of paper um, that has all the information, who the grower is, when the harvest happened, uh, and all the information that you need for that. So because feces gets into the water, viruses travel in feces, and, and the one, well, we're worried about all the different viruses, but hepatitis A virus it can take like two months for symptoms to develop in a person. And so the health department wants us to keep these tags for three months so that it gives the health department an extra month to backtrack, to find out and, and uh, uh, investigate where things come from and why it happened. So uh, oftentimes we have various illnesses that happen from shellfish besides hepatitis A or norovirus um, and because of red tide and things like that. So all the bad things that can happen and contaminate these shellfish and fish, um, the health department wants to be able to track back. And so we keep these things for 90 days. When there's a box of 100 and you serve 30 the first day, 30 the next day, and the remainder on the final day, then you take your Sharpie pen and you write that date that you last served the last shellfish on the tag. And then you hang on to that tag for 90 days in your file cabinet in order so that when the health department has some kind of complaint or, or they want to do some type of investigation, um, then they come and you can actually just hand it to them. So uh, 90 days, keep all your tags uh, because of the viruses, um, and that's why 90 days. Okay, good agriculture practices. We talked about that early on. Cross-contamination. Um, pathogens moving from one food or or uh, food contact service from one place to another. So dirty towels, um, dirty hands especially, uh, dirty cutting boards, knives. So for us... We transfer, we, we change our knives and, and cutting boards every time we move from one product to another. Take it back, wash, rinse, sanitize, air dry the knife, and then use it again on a new product. Same thing with the boards. We turn it into the scullery, uh, the dishwashers, and we grab a new setup. Make sure to wipe down your counters. And, and uh, with the two pan is what we call it. So we have a green bucket, hot soapy water, and then we have a red pail of sanitizer. 
So you wash your area first, and then you rinse it, and then you sanitize it, let it air dry, and then you go back to work. So that's the industry standard, and that's what we do. 41 to 135, that's the temperature danger zone. So 41 degrees Fahrenheit to 135 degrees Fahrenheit is the range where the bacteria are happy and they will thrive. Now, from 70 to 125, that's in the middle. So if you if you draw your thermometer out and you have 41 to 135 degrees, in the middle, there's a 70 degrees to 125 degrees. That's where they really thrive and grow quickly. So 70 degrees is that very important mark that you want to. That's why in the cooling process and the video I did earlier, um, you, you try and knock that temperature down when you're cooling it in order to put it away for the night so you can use it again tomorrow. You have to ice bath it or use a stir wand, uh, an ice bath, an ice stick, and... and um, cool the food down to 70 uh, as quick as possible because above 70, they grow quicker, the bacteria, if it's there. And below 70, they grow slower. So you want to hit that 70 mark and no steam uh, before you get it into the fridge. Uh, pH scale. The scale from 0 to 14, 7 being neutral. So on the 0 side is acid, acidity. On the 14 end is the alkaline and bases, and right in the middle is 7. So uh, it was 4.6 to 7.5 is that middle range where the bacteria can grow and be happy. Um, when you use pH test strips and you're doing certain techniques of preservation, you know, you have to prove that you're making that uh, appropriate pre pH uh, to prove to the health inspectors. So just to understand that the pH scale, uh, you know, some foods are acidic, some are um, other things are base that we use in cooking. And, and uh, we want to prevent the bacterial growth so we can use pH as a control. All right. 50% to 60% is the humidity range for the dry storage room. So we don't want the storage room to be wet. We want it to be dry, clean. Uh, and if it's too wet in there, the cans will rust and the flour and the rice will become moldy and, and get all damp. So we want to make sure that we have a good humidity range in the dry storage room. FDA, Food and Drug Administration, uh, they write the food code every four years, and it's a recommendation to the industry, but it's the best science and study research information from all the different organizations. So the CDC, the Conference for Food Protection, um, the Public Health Service, everybody does research and study information. They shoot all this information to the FDA. The FDA writes the code, the model food code, every four years, and then they do a supplement or an update every two years. So uh, even though it's a recommendation to the industry, it's because it's federal. The federal recommends, and then the state either picks it up directly or they tweak it and change it a little bit. So looking at the 2017 model food code and the adoption throughout the United States, it looks like California is the only one who hasn't adopted it directly. They 
are working. I have the Cal code here, and the Cal code is it's based on the 2005 model food code, but we in California work off of Cal code, California retail food code. Um, all the other states come, it looks like, uh, based on the report, come from the various food codes uh, over the years. So the 2001 food code, 2013 food code, it depends on which state. So when you go to where you're going, there may be differences based on on uh, which state you're in and even which county. So here in California, we have 58 counties, and each county reads the model, uh, uh, the California Retail Food Code, Cal Code, and then it depends on what they want to focus on. So, you know, some are more strict than others on certain areas. And it depends on the inspector, just like every human, you know, what they uh, read and how strict or lenient they're going to be on certain things. But here in California, it's Cal Code. And throughout the rest of the nation, it's uh, various um, versions of the model food code. Food allergies, uh, the big eight. So we have peanuts, tree nuts, fish, shellfish, soy, dairy, wheat, eggs. And again, earlier on, we talked about cross-contact. So cross-contact is the same as cross-contamination. Only when you see that word, you're after the allergens. Cross-contact, you just look right for the allergens. And it's the same idea. So food allergies... It's a microscopic protein that you cannot kill. So sanitizing doesn't kill it. It doesn't matter. So when you wash and rinse your hands or a table or a cutting board or a knife, you wash and rinse and it sends that little microscopic protein down the drain. Then you sanitize to kill off any pathogens like salmonella or listeria or something else that may be left over also. But you can't kill uh, an allergen. That's why when people have uh, deep fryers and they are frying French fries and then they drop in some shrimp, now the French fries may be contaminated with that microscopic protein that could really hurt somebody or kill somebody. So wash and rinse to get rid of the protein, the microscopic protein. Um and then you sanitize afterwards to kill off whatever else is there potentially. But industry standard is wash, rinse, sanitize, and air dry. That's it. That's what we do with all food contact surfaces. Okay? And then uh, uh, Chef Meng Tsai has a, a binder. Uh, so he did a video years ago that I liked, and, and it's a, a great thing. So it's a binder. Every single recipe is in there, and at the top – each of the allergens are there, so it's a quick reference guide for the servers, and they go up to the sous chef or the chef, and they double-check it together when they have an order for somebody uh, at a table, a guest. And, you know, it's the two eyes double-checking each other to make sure that they can order that particular item. Um, so he did a good job putting that thing together, and I, I really uh, appreciate that. Okay, Sigwaterra. Ciguatera fish poisoning. So it's, it's common in warm water fish, ciguatera, uh, from either the red tide or the, the coral. You know, there's toxins in red tide, toxic marine algae, that get into the shellfish, 
that we were talking about with the 90 days before. Um, the algae during certain months, certain times when the sun is bright, the algae grows and grows and grows and grows. And pretty soon it chokes off the oxygen and it dies. And then the bacteria in that algae grows through the bacterial growth curve. And at the end of the growth curve, it becomes toxic or poisonous on the decline phase, right? There's the lag phase, log phase, uh, stationary phase, and decline. In the decline phase, they become toxic. And so now it's just floating out in the water. And then it gets into the little fish or the shellfish. And if we uh, clam dig and we get some clams or oysters um, and red tide was in the area, it could be in there. We eat those and we can become poisoned from eating that toxin. Remember, a toxin, you can't wash away, you can't rinse it away, you can't freeze it away, you can't cook it away. Once a toxin is there, it's there. And so with these, oftentimes, uh, this ciguatera fish poisoning, uh, barracuda, amberjack, snapper, grouper, different fish, these are the bigger fish. They eat the little fish. The little fish had eaten that red tide or, or fed off of that co poisonous coral. Okay. So it's common in warm water areas, and we don't hear about it up here in California, but uh, it's there. So purchase all your fish from an approved, reputable supplier. And those approved suppliers, those fishermen, are always watching for red tide and time frames and making sure that they're fishing in clean areas. All right, seven days. Seven days. How long can you keep a product in the refrigerator uh, and the bacterial growth curve? Um, lag phase, log phase, stationary phase, decline phase. Okay, we say that that's four hours. You have four hours for food to sit out at no temperature control. And then after four hours, it needs to be thrown in the garbage. So here, seven days, listeria grows in the refrigerator down to 32 degrees, but it doesn't die. And so 32 degrees is freezing. Our refrigeration is normally at 41 degrees or 40 degrees. So we want to keep our food under 41 degrees, which inhibits the rapid and progressive growth of other bacteria, including salmonella. But listeria is the one that grows in the refrigerator. So this is why we have seven days to hold the product in the fridge because listeria could potentially grow uh, through that seven day through the, the bacterial growth curve. All right. 135 degrees, hot holding temperatures. So your serving line, hot food delivery temperatures and transportation like those new pizza delivery cars. Uh, everything needs to be temperature controlled above 135. So you cook it properly first say a piece of chicken, you cook your chicken to 165 degrees, then you put it in the pan and then you control the temperature and you make sure it's above 135 degrees until it gets to the consumer. Same thing with that pizza. Um, that way, no bacterial growth is going to happen. You killed the bacteria at 165 and now in case something transferred on, cross-contaminated on to the chicken, um, it's not going to grow because it's above 135. IPM, Integrated Pest Management. So the three rules to uh, pest management is to de deny, deny, work with. So you deny access, you build them out, you close all the gaps, you, you caulk all the cracks, right? 
deny food, water, and shelter. So you clean every single day. Don't wait till tomorrow. You clean today. Make sure everything is clean and put away. And you work with a PCO, a pest control operator. All right. So deny, deny, work with on integrated pest management. We don't want pests in the operation. And finally, on this page, lighting. 50, 20, 10. So 50 foot candles in the food preparation area. That way, foot candles is the amount of light. When you go to a photographer, they have a little light sensor and it shows, you know, how much light is hitting the the subject's face or whatever. Um, So the inspectors use a light meter also when they go into certain areas to do their inspections. Uh, and, And it needs to be 50 foot candles. So very, very bright. So you can actually see and inspect the food in the food preparation area. 20 foot candles in the service area. So that's just picking up a plate and delivering it to the customer. You don't have to inspect the food. I mean, you can look at it and and they have to look at it first before they give it to the server. Uh, And 10 foot candles in the refrigeration. So when you open up a low boy refrigerator, um, the little light bulb pops on and you don't have to inspect anything. All you have to do is find the box and pull it out. So 50, 20, 10, 50 foot candles for food prep. 20-foot candles for service areas, and 10-foot candles for storage areas. Okay, I wanted to get that done, and there will be more to come. Thanks very much.